0: Before it all came apart, everything was falling so neatly into place. Our team was assembled and we were heavy into preparations. As teams before ours had done, we studied interview techniques and learned about the history of the places we were set to visit, like the Flint sit-down strike of 1936, and how LBJ launched a war on poverty from a front porch in Martin County, Kentucky in 1964. We reviewed international law to discover that the human right to water was only first recognized by the United Nations in 2010. We listened to gorgeous examples of audio journalism that told stories about the profound struggle to be human. All our plans were taking shape for another cycle of the Moral Courage Project. We started to get giddy about traveling together, too. We were excited for our small fleet of rental cars to pull up to campus, where we will pile in with bags packed to depart Dayton, Ohio, for Eastern Kentucky, and begin our work on the water crisis impacting the region. Flipping through photos of the Airbnbs, we began to get familiar with the places where we would stay in Lightsport, Kentucky. Porches with mountain views, old quilts and fabric pinwheel decor, pink out bathrooms, the loft with a vinyl record collection and glowing purple neon sign that felt intensely out of place. We were looking forward to these quaint and unfamiliar spaces to host takeout dinners, endless debriefing and late night laughter. We only think we would have loved it there. We never actually went.
1: I'm Desilene of And I'm Grace Gibson. And this is Poison and Power The Fight for Water, a Moral Courage Project, a partnership of the University of Dayton Human Rights Center and Proof Media for Social Justice. Our goal is to visit sites of human rights crises, immerse ourselves in the community, and share stories that challenge and broaden public understanding of crucial and complex events. In the first season of Moral Courage Radio, a team of students traveled to Ferguson, Missouri to learn from people who witnessed and shaped the 2014 uprising. In our second season, a team traveled to El Paso, Texas to gather stories of those affected by and working to change the immigration crisis. This season, we can't tell you what the air is like in Appalachia or what the city of Flint feels like on a summer night. In March 2020, our team joined most Americans and began our work from home. This season, we assembled stories from the front line of an ongoing struggle for water in the United States, and the water warriors are our storytellers. During our shared isolation, we learned the stories of people who love their cities, forests, and neighbors, confronting forces driven to preserve authority and pursue profit, taking great risks to fight government neglect and private interest. We now understand what lengths some will go to when they're afraid of what their tap water will do to their bodies, and the bodies of their loved ones.
0: We start this season with a focus on the health of our bodies of water, bodies that snake across the landscape, as well as those bodies we inhabit. Streams splash like blood through earthly arteries. Oceans and lakes feed rivers that cut through mountains as a delivery system that carries nutrition out to all extremities. We force water downward from its natural home, rushing into pipes that bend at 90 degree angles to send the supply from the main to our homes into the back of coffee machines out the sprinkler our kids run in through loads of laundry you don't want to fold. Like a winding, interlocking series of veins plumbing directs and connects us with an essential and life-giving material. Water makes up 90 percent of our blood which courses through channels beneath our skin to our deepest internal organs, ensuring health in our very existence. Shapeless, odorless, and colorless in the wild, in Flint, Detroit, and across Appalachia, the water absorbed the flavor of the factories and mines that colonized the terrain. From there, water filled the contours of ancient corroded pipes. When industrial waste contaminates bodies of water, they get sick. The same water that runs through those bodies also runs through ours, which is why the health of the environment is so crucial to human health. The maladies brought on by toxic water damage the human body affecting all of its systems. And yet, despite the illnesses and impacts people face, they do not accept their fates. They fight back. They know there is nothing natural about the orange and brown color of the water pouring into their sinks and showers, putting pieces together. The women we meet in this episode take action, naming names and pointing fingers at the powerful actors responsible for poisoning their families and communities.
1: We start in a parking lot outside a grocery store in Warfield, Kentucky. Not a metaphoric parking lot or a virtual parking lot, but a real parking lot. Back in December, 2019, four months before the pandemic changed everything. Team coordinators traveled to Martin County, Kentucky to meet people and scout the trip we were slated to take together. Their first encounter was with Barbie Ann Maynard, a water warrior from the Martin County Concerned Citizens. When we linked up, Barbie climbed into our rental car with a folder overflowing with old water bills and other documents.
2: And listen, here's how I got involved in this. I had turned 24 in September. October 11th, we had the cold slurry spill. November the 2nd, I found out I was pregnant with my first child. Then, I'll show you the warnings. I started getting these warnings on my water bill if you're pregnant or infant. causes all these problems. So, I'm not the type of person to sit back and just keep my mouth shut. So, you either let them poison you and your child, or you do something about it. So, I've been very vocal. I wanna show you something. Give me your finger. I had two removed from right here. I had my first one removed in 2001. December 2001. Last week, it started burning. And that's when I found this one. And I went to the emergency room thinking I had a hernia. And, Nothing come up on the scan. They said, but you need to go see a surgeon. So I follow up over in Pikeville with a surgeon. They said, nothing come up on the scan. We're going to run the scan again. So they go and run the scan again. Nothing. But there's obviously something there, and it's causing me problems. So I'm going in for exploratory surgery two days after Christmas. It's not small. I mean, you've failed of it. I have hundreds of them. I call them my jelly balls. Hold on, I'll show you one on my rib. Put your fingers right here. This is what they feel like before they start growing. You feel like jelly ball? I've got hundreds of jelly balls. It, it feels like a marble, but it's jelly, it's squishy. And they don't really bother me. But then when they start growing, these right here was the size of that one, by the size of a marble. Within a week, it was the size of an egg. Two weeks, it was the size of an orange. By the third week when I got it removed, it was the size of a grapefruit. Studies that I found because I wanted to know. Okay, here's our water bill. It's that little fine print, so I blowed it up to make it easier for you all to read. If you have a severely compromised immune system, have an infant, are pregnant, or are elderly, you may be at an increased risk and should seek advice from your healthcare care provider about drinking this water. Okay, now for years we got these. Okay, people who drink this water containing, it's the big word, so HAAs and THMs, disinfectant byproducts. May experience problems with their liver, kidney, central nervous system damage, and have an increased risk of getting cancer. Then here's another disinfectant byproduct It says, again, may have an increased risk of getting cancer. And it's that fine print. Who Who sees that? My mom got cancer twice. She passed away at 50 years old. The second time, she was 48. It was brain cancer. Okay? Um... When my mom was going through it, there were 27 people within five miles. If you look, especially down where I live, the houses are not real close together. So when I'm talking that many people in five miles, okay? My dad has dementia. I've had custody of him for three years, okay? My dad is just 64, okay? I can stand on my front porch and point at seven homes. That's... Pretty much every home that has somebody over 60 has somebody in that house with dementia. And I asked my dad's neurologist about the disinfectant byproducts and the neurological problems, And he looked at my dad and he said, your daughter very smart. <laughs> 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 and then I found out um, you, um, Virginia Tech came in. I had them come in and test the water. And they, it came up high. in A lot of people ask me about national... Politicians And I said, listen, no, no, no. They won't even, we're, we're the redheaded stepchild. We're the poor. We're the isolated. We, we don't matter. We're the ignorant hillbillies, according to them. You know, and a lot of people are like, if a little girl from Martin County can be heard around the world, there's hope for all of us. You have to open your mouth, though. If you just sit back and keep your mouth shut, nothing's ever going to change.
0: Gina Luster, an activist with Flint Rising, has deep roots in the city. Her grandparents came up originally from Arkansas to pursue economic opportunity. After leaving Flint to settle in Houston while she was working in fashion for the entertainment industry, Gina returned to a different city than the one she grew up in. And
3: that's where it started for me. My activism actually started because... I was really upset about how the city looked that I had grew up in and had such a special childhood. I mean, I always make a joke and say, I grew up hood rich, you know. Um, (laughs) My grandfather was from the deep South. He was born in the twenties and he believed in an honest living, you know, you work hard and you build your money and you save your money. I used to ask him, Granddad, how did you become rich? And he said, well, when I worked at GM, no matter what, they got paid every week. He would put half of his check up. You got to remember, this is when they were only making like $2 an hour probably, if that. And he had eight kids. In some kind of way, he was able to purchase a home, raise eight kids, and put up half of his check. I don't know how he did it. We moved to Michigan when I was four. I grew up one block away from the Flint River. One block east was the Flint River, and one block north was uh, a General Motors plant, Buick City. It was the Buick headquarters. It was actually the headquarters. Even as a kid, we knew that the Flint River was not safe to play in. Of course, we did anyways, but you know, you your parents and grandparents would tell you, you know, you don't want to play in the Flint River, that water is not the cleanest. And you could smell it and it looked kinda of green and but your kid, you know, you're you're little and you play in it. So I've been exposed to this Flint River water since I was four years old. Just never really thought much about it. Uh my dad always said we we weren't weren't allowed to eat any fish that came out of the river. Cause people go down, they're still there. Right now I can drive downtown and there's people fishing. <laughs> they're fishing in it. Yes. Um but I was always told, you know, you don't want to eat any fish that comes up out of the Flint River. And the way downtown Flint is set up, they kinda had it where parts of the Flint River would come through. It's like a little river walk where you could put your feet in the water, that kind of thing. And, um, little mini waterfalls that kids could run under, things like that. We would still do. Number one, it's the river runs alongside of the General Motors plant, so it's really a no-brainer that you're getting all these chemicals in the river because you can literally walk ten steps from the plant to the Flint River. But I always felt safe drinking consuming our water, you know, I never was, my grandparents owned a convenience store and never drank any bottled water. We drank water out of the faucet, you know, as kids, we would go get the water hose and hold it up to our mouths and do goofy things like that. And never was concerned about, you know, the water poisoning. They tell us that one of the ways to fight some of the, the contaminants that we've been exposed to is to eat fresh fruits and vegetables. Well, for us here, it's kind of difficult to grow your own fruits and vegetables when the soil is contaminated by bad water. So a lot of people are doing the, um, the raised gardens. So you see a lot of those coming about around town. I don't trust the soil because the pipes are leaking into the soil. I thought in the beginning when I was first heard about the lead and what lead could do to kids. And, of course, I was running to the farmer's market getting as many bunches of kale and all this stuff. And then I'm sitting at home one day thinking about it. Wait, this was grown right here. In this <laughs> I don't think I want this. So sometimes I'll drive all the way to Detroit just to get fresh fruits and vegetables. Because I trust their water more than I trust our water. Yeah, well, should I say, our, their soil more than I trust the soil
1: here. So. Karen Ireland is an environmental lobbyist in Charleston, West Virginia. What is now her career started as a simple response by a citizen who wanted answers from her government.
4: I just have taken a job recently with Sierra Club. I am the um, senior campaign representative for uh, Central Appalachia, and I work on the Beyond Coal campaign and the Beyond Dirty Fuels campaigns. So that's, you know, trying to uh, transition away from fossil fuels. You know, the fact that I have this job is because I was impacted by a chemical leak here in Charleston. We had uh, in 2014, which is the same year that they discovered the Flint contamination, we had a, a drinking water contamination here in the capital city that affected 300,000 people. We weren't able to drink or bathe in or clean with our water. We were only allowed to use it for flushing officially that lasted between nine and 13 days, but it, you know, for some, there are people who still won't drink the water here. And so I became active as a result of that, you know, I had always kind of considered myself, you know, political and engaged and, uh, I would have called myself an environmentalist at the time, although I don't know in retrospect what that would have actually meant, except that I, you know, voted according to my values. I was very frustrated with the official response to the the leak. There was a tank farm. It was basically a chemical storage facility. Uh, It was located about a mile and a half upstream from our sole drinking water intake and um, the chemical that leaked, there was, a, it was called MCHM, and it was a coal cleaning chemical manufactured by Eastman, um, which is located in Tennessee. Uh, the company's name was Freedom Industries. They were kind of a small operation. There was a kind of a perfect storm of negligence and the lax regulatory culture here. The water company was also largely at fault. They were not able to quickly respond um, to the fact that there was contamination. And I think what frustrated me at the time, first of all, I, I got sick from taking a shower. I mean, that's my version of events now. You know, I think there would be many officials or industry executives who would say that that, you know, that's, there's no proof of that. But Um, I remember getting in the shower, it was a very hot shower, stayed in it a while, and then became very quickly ill and that was like the day before the um, leak was discovered and I had smelled at that time what I would later know that this this chemical had a very low odor threshold, so um, it smelled like licorice, the whole city smelled like licorice ultimately the main frustration was, you know, I'd gotten sick. My kids had rashes on their faces. It was this huge, uh, at best, was a huge inconvenience. And then, you know, for people who were in outlying areas, it was, you know, way worse than just inconvenient. But there was just this whole rush, you know, to to make things seem okay, or um, to kind of shy away from t- from any accountability about how this all came to be. But we had this, you know, big community meeting and where we kind of just said, okay, well we have questions that we need to get answers and we wanted to come together to try to figure out, you know, what what are the questions that people have? What are the resources you might know about to get those questions answered? How can we get organized to figure out what's going on and, you know, do something on our own since the people who are responsible to us are not, don't seem to be hearing us. So that kind of launched me into the stuff that I've been doing ever since. So we ended up creating a um, like an ad hoc group. I think we called it CAPE, it was called CAPE, Citizens Actively Protecting the Environment, I think it was. We had talked about like citizens against a poisoned environment, but then someone was like, let's be more proactive. Um, but we made, I mean, and that dissolved We because you know, there were other established groups um, who had not really a quick, nimble response that we had, but then because they were established, we kind of all just started working together. Uh, but at that meeting, we committed to taking everyone's contact information, compiling, you know, a list of resources, whether that was the governor's office or the le- your legislators or the regulatory agencies, public service commission, the water company, and like keeping a a running tab of kind of questions and answers, um, events, next steps, things like that. I had gone to work um, actually in marketing for this law firm and I'd been there maybe a month by the time the um, leak happened and I hated it. Like I hated working for this law firm. And when I got really engaged, I kind of cut back my hours and took some, I quit that job, took some freelance um, contract gigs, and so that I could work more on this, you know, unpaid organizing work I was doing. And it just really, like, nothing I'd ever done in my life felt as right. You know, like, I didn't care how, how many hours I was working doing this, because I just was so involved and engaged and I cared so much about what we were doing. I think that I am a person who has like a deep, like it really bothers me when something feels, seems unfair. I remember thinking that frankly this is bullshit. Like what they're saying is just complete BS and they expect us to kind of buy all of this, you know, and it just I just was incensed, I think. You know, I would not have considered myself an activist. The first time somebody called me in like the newspaper that they used the term environmental activist, I was like, what? But, um, because I just felt like, you know, I just, all I wanted was to be able to drink the water that was coming and not get sick.
0: Nair Sharif comes out of progressive political organizing and mobilization. She's anchored by a connection to the Black radical tradition and the labor movement that deeply shaped the city of Flint and its residents. And this industrial past is still very much in the water.
5: We lived a couple of blocks away from the Genesee power station. And it was like already like in an industrial park that had like a lot of crap that was happening. And I remember riding my... We used to ride our bikes. Like, down there and see like the smokestacks and thinking that that was super cool because you could see it and it was like super thick but you know like as an adult you're just like like ruining everybody's lives so it's like oh that's probably why i grew up like with a nebulizer and having like severe asthma as a child both of my parents like came moved to flint like really like during like the 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 latter stages of the great Mi- migration Uh, My dad came here in the late 50s, and my mom kind of bounced back and forth in between uh, Michigan and Arkansas, and they didn't have running water at their farm in Arkansas. Um, So my mom's family, they would come up here in the winter and make money by her dad working in the shop, and then they would go down in the summer and work on their farm and that's what they were doing. But, you know, my dad was like, you know, involved in the black power movement. He was actually a conscientious objector during the Vietnam war and ended up serving federal time. So growing up, you know, like we have just like a sense of self and being like proud of our blackness. So that was something that was really centered in our household. And then, um, you know, also of just like, you know, the idea that you would stand up and speak for, speak up for injustice and you don't like let it sit. Because I remember just this very, this big sense of like solidarity because, you know, my father worked in the, um, worked for General Motors. <laughs> it's funny. I was like, hey, my father worked in the shop, <laughs> which is like, a euphemism for her. <laughs> I mean, in Michigan, if you're like, your parents are part, are, are part of the union, like basically that's a
6: euphemism for the UAW
5: because it was just like so large. But one of the other things was like, we didn't cross like any sort of picket line. So if there was like somebody out there, if there are workers out there protesting, like we're not crossing the picket line. And many times, like we would join the protests. <laughs> Like, in solidarity, like we would like be out there <laughs> um, and joining the picket line
6: because
5: if we had full and robust local democracy, um the decision there would not have been a decision to draw from the Flint River because um because people growing up in Flint know that there was years of dumping from General Motors to the Flint River we knew like immediately after like there was something wrong with that water because people who were on the Detroit water system like didn't have any issues and then like you're having what looks like cystic acne but probably was chemical burns on their face (laughs) Um, but I know I had some stuff where it was like it felt like cystic acne and I'm like I don't even get acne and then just say just by washing your face and you're having like these things that is like painful and red and you know people getting sick and all these other things that are happening so so really like Flair rising like really began with just telling people like don't drink the water don't boil the water because you have like you know so many people especially people who grew up in like rural areas is like you you make your water safe by boiling because you're killing off bacteria and viruses that may exist in the water. But with heavy metals, you're actually concentrating it. And then, like, whatever chemicals that exist into it, you know, getting released in steam because, like, we had initially, like, the total trihalomethanes or TTHMs, which is a chlorination byproduct. So what the city was doing was just basically pulling a bunch of
0: chlorine into
5: it because, like, we had all these we had all this E. coli that was in the water. So we had all these boil advisories just basically immediately after um, the switch, I would say two weeks after the switch, like we had E. coli in our water and we had like three other E. coli (laughs) things that was happening. And so then like, and what they were doing was like they were over chlorinating the water and then that basically was the total trihalomethane, which is not good at all. So, and, and the crazy part is like, like if it's six times more deadly if it's, if it's aerated. So basically vaporized. so it's like, you're taking that hot shower, like you're breathing all that in, you're breathing those chemicals in and you're, you're scarring your lung tissue. Uh, on top of whatever chemical, whatever thing, whatever else was in there because nobody knows because nobody was testing at the time. And, and I would say like, that's one of like the long-term struggles now is you know especially in light of COVID I know like I had very mild asthma before the water crisis and now my asthma is is very severe but I would say like for me like I'm like you know I I get afraid to leave like I'm afraid to leave the house because I'm like if I get the coronavirus like i'm definitely gonna get a ventilator like i probably should be on oxygen now because <laughs> i like i already have like very much diminished lung capacity now for well 2016 you know like we kind of upended that conventional wisdom that you couldn't like like drinking water was not a source of lead because before that like it was like physicians like public health professionals, like nobody said it was a source of lead, and now that has been acknowledged. but but one of the things that you know kind of gets lost in this is like we were also fighting for like water affordability because we were paying the highest rates in the country for water, and the fact that water is still not seen as something tantamount to public health. It, and you get water, like really. Public health began with water. <laughs> public <Probably> health <laughs> began like with with cholera and typhoid fever, you know. <laughs> and and we know that water stops the spread of communicable diseases. And the fact that you have um people who are more concerned of like how you're going to pay for it, because I'm like you're seeing this as an economic generator, and water is not an economic generator, you know, like. Like, having running water is is is, is tied to public health. Nyere
0: was among the first to organize residents in Flint. Gina Luster, here again, describes some of those early days. We thought it
3: was just rashes. No, we started knocking on doors. We we're hearing people's teeth are falling out, hair and vision. And we're like, whoa, this is bigger than what we thought. So we collected all of this data and what we would do from there we started having community meetings so we not only canvassed the whole city we decided we're going to have a community meeting in every ward so it would be nine meetings over a nine ten month stretch so we did that and that way we got a lot of the community out and a lot of the times when we had those community meetings We were sharing some of the information and data that we had gotten from canvassing, plus we were sharing uh, the information that we had gotten from working with the EPA, the NRDC, ACLU. So we had a lot of information to share with the community. And I want to say this. One of the reasons Flint happened was because of a lack of communication. Just people just didn't know. Information was not getting out, you know. I live in a section of town where they told me that I didn't have Flint water. Well, come to find out, either they were lying or they just didn't know. But I drank that water for an additional 16 months because I didn't think I had Flint water. Part of my story is from the poisoning, I ended up having to have a full hysterectomy. I could no longer have kids. First, I had a partial hysterectomy, then I had to have breast surgery because the le- the bacteria I was having these real bad bouts of bacteria, and the bacteria settled in my breast and they thought I had breast cancer. So I'm in the hospital again. I, I used to show people I'm too embarrassed to show it now, but my entire dining room. Goes up about a foot off the floor of just paperwork from doctor's appointments and hospital visits. People got stuck in their head that Flint was all about lead. You know, it was like, oh, okay, they got lead in the water. But as time went on, we found out there were things in our water that were more deadlier than lead, believe it or not. Is there any safe level of lead? Is there any safe level of Legionnaires, you know? (laughs) No. So, um, and I'm like, you know, I always tell people until every single pipe inside of homes, businesses, schools, every single pipe has to be replaced. Our entire infrastructure has to have an overhaul. And not only that, our water plant is like 50 years old. So it's outdated. So any, you can like I keep saying, you can bring water from heaven, but as soon as it touches our infrastructure, it's contaminated. I get calls in the middle of the night, you know, my hot water heater bursts because that's one of the effects of the lead. We're going through hot water heaters and washer and dryers and toilets, refrigerators, anything that kind of needs water to run. I know a few people that have replaced their hot water tank. We're six years in now. They've had three. Usually you don't have to replace a hot water tank for 10, 20 years. They're on their third one. I got three bathrooms in my house. I think, yeah, I've replaced each toilet at least twice. Even washing my car, the water rusted out my car. It killed my plants. It killed my sister's dogs. I mean, just things you wouldn't think of that you need water for. It. It's so weird. I'm like, I've i turned down a couple offers because I'm like, for me, it was it's like, I mean, I could do it, but it wouldn't have an ending because we're still fighting. I would like the book to have an ending. If you're going to do a biography on me or my life story, I want it to have an awesome ending where we kick the government's ass and we got we got fucking clean water, clean rivers. They're not fracking, and Nestle's not stealing our damn water out my backyard while I'm paying a 200-a-month water bill, and they're freaking pumping billions of gallons of water a year for $200. This doesn't make any goddamn sense. So the movie wouldn't be cool for me because it wouldn't have an ending. It, the ending would me cussing just like that. Like, I'm still fucking fighting these idiots, you know? <laughs> so...
0: Uh. pediatrician dr mona anna atisha did write a book with the eyes don't see a story of crisis resistance and hope in an american city that earned her among other things a spot on oprah's book club list dr mona is one of the most visible figures linked to Flint for her role in identifying the presence of lead in the water early on the impact of which she continues to see in the bodies of the children that visit her office
6: um, and that's the beauty of kind of working in, in public health as well is, is a, and in policies that you get to make it a, a bigger impact than just kind of one-on-one. Um, and that really enables me to, um, to work with others to address a lot of the root causes of, the, you know, what makes our communities unhealthy. Um, so I love all that. I think if I had to pick one thing that I love or that I'm most proud of, um, and that is kind of being a pediatrician to our fun kids. Um, they, they give me energy, they give me joy, they give me inspiration. They, they're like my recharge um, that makes, you know, that really grounds me um, and, and enables me to kind of do all this other work. So, I am an immigrant came here to the states when I was about four originally iraqi American My parents uh, really came fleeing the regime of Saddam hussein um, came for what all immigrants come to this country for uh, for opportunity for freedom for democracy um, and that American dream was absolutely realized for for me and my family and um, grew up with this kind of perspective of Uh, of service, um, of needing to kind of get back to my community. Um, Also grew up with kind of very much the ideals of um, uh, social justice uh, kind of passed on through um, lots of folks in my family um, that, you know, this is kind of who we are and, you know, it doesn't really matter where you are or what you're doing or your profession, um, that you should really kind of use your skills an opportunity to, to help others. I'm a, I'm a weird kind of thing. Like I'm a, I'm a Brown person. I'm not a white person, but I'm not a black person. Um, I'm not from Flint. Like I don't, it wasn't born there, but you know, that's where I spent most of my time. Um, So I'm, I'm, I'm kind of in this weird place. Um, I'm definitely not like a white male. So like, you know, that was easy for them to kind of or folks to differentiate um, and not attack me as much as, um, as other folks. So, um, you know, I think that kind of my, um, immigrant or my, and being not only a, a woman, but also a person of color, I think, I think that made me more, I hope accepted, um, than maybe some other folks, uh, who, who were involved. I also very much naively thought, like, I think most of America before Flynn, um, that when you Turn on your tap, your water is safe. Um, so I think you know I, you know despite having a background in, in environmental health and kind of being involved in different environmental issues and and public health, and uh, you know I, I never even would have fathomed, and I, I that water wouldn't be safe. Flint has been able to shine a light on on these issues all over the country. There have been so many positive ripple effects from what happened in Flint. Uh, people are now not naively just thinking their water is safe. Uh, more and more people are testing or, and they're asking questions and they're trying to kind of um, validate before trusting, uh, be it their water or anything else. I think the PFAS issues that are happening nationally um, are really on the heels of kind of Flint's issues. Uh, so there is a lot of positive things that have happened as ripple effects from our crisis that give me so much hope. Um, you know, there's movements and there's activists and there's people who are inspired really by our story, um, inspired that they can also um, be part of a team, that they can also make a difference, that they can also defy the status quo um, and, and make the impossible possible. Um, so as much as you know the story of flint is this crime right it is a crime um that happened uh to some of the most kind of vulnerable people it's also this amazing story of resistance and it's an amazing story of hope and I, and I, and it almost to me um you know serves as a playbook uh to folks all over who are trying to fight for you know against an injustice no matter what that injustice may be be it COVID disparities or environmental issues or, you know, housing discrimination, you name it. Um, you know, there are some really important lessons that I think that the story can bring home that has been used in other communities, um, to, you know, to, to help others. There were so many best things about my work. Um, I, I pinch myself every single day, um, that I get to do this work. I love, I love, um, my profession. I love the people that I work with um, I, I, you know, I love everything about it. And, you know, I, I love being a provider and a practitioner. I mean, I was in clinic this week, taking care of patients. Um, I, I love that one on one, but what I most love about what I get to do is the ability to take, take a step back and also work in the population space. And sometimes when I'm just kind of walking around, people are like, Oh my gosh, you're still here. I'm like, yeah, where am I going? I'm here. Um, so I think, uh, that makes Uh, me more of a real person um to folks and and I really and I think a lot of people when they meet me for the first time they're like wow like we're so surprised like you're such a real person like at first they're shocked like wow you're really short you guys can't tell that but like I'm barely five feet. they're like wow like you're 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 small and you're real and like you're normal so I think um that has kind of also grounded me in community
1: would you consider yourself morally courageous
6: um, I would consider myself human. Um, so th- what, I've, what I've done and what I do is what everybody should do. This is not anything, I don't think it's anything special. I think it's um, it's in all of us. Um, and um, it, it's there's really no, for me, people are like, oh, you were so brave. You had so much courage. And, and my often response is like, it was a choiceless choice. Like I, there was no other way. Um, I, you know, there was not a close your eyes and, you know, pretend this is not happening. There was only the moving forward to do this work. So um, I, I don't know if that's, if that's courage or if that's empathy or if that's just, you know, doing the right thing. I would do everything exactly the same way again. We all have this amazing power within us to do this, no matter who we are, have this same ability. Um, to stand up and speak up and, and fight for, for justice, no matter what the issue may be. And, and I, I don't think it's, it's courage. I just think it's, it's what you do for your neighbors.
1: And that remains our core question. What does courage look like in a water crisis? Does courage, like water, spill out and splash around, seeping through cracks and finding its way into open space? Is courage innate for some people? Does it course through their veins, or run through their bones in order to keep their spine straight? In this, our first episode, we mapped out some terrain and introduced you to a few storytellers you'll hear more from over the next five episodes, as we detail stories of fierce resistance shaped by science, history, race, class, gender, spirituality, and political power. This season of Moral Courage Radio will explore each of these tributaries and vessels next time on Moral Courage Radio.
6: I came back from Washington one time and we had been and I got this message and I don't mean to laugh about it because my brother they thought it wasn't funny and they told me that it's gonna kill me. And they had been paid to kill me.
0: This is Poison and Power, the fight for water, and Mural Courage Project. We are your hosts, Desnaid Bluthenthal and Grace Gibson. This episode was written by Joel Proust. Our musical score was composed, performed, and produced by Beck Trumbull, and the musical theme was inspired by Gillian Parker. Mural Courage Radio is produced by Joel Proust. Find and follow us across social media platforms. If you like what you've heard here, tell some friends, leave us a review, and be sure to subscribe to Moral Courage Radio so you can get the next episode as soon as
6: it drops.